0: I'm Mark Beattie. I'm the Editor in Chief of Archives Disease in Childhood. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the content from the August edition. The first paper that I'm going to cover relates to factors affecting the outcome of snake envenomation. Globally, 421,000 envenomings and 20,000 deaths occur due to snake bites each year. The highest numbers are in South Asia southeast asia and sub-saharan africa use of a tourniquet and prompt administration of antivenom are factors that impact outcome in this issue sankar evaluates the clinical outcome and factors affecting it in a cohort referred to a tertiary center in india 110 children all of whom had confirmed snake bites most of the bites occurred at night the species of snake were identified in 81 cases. saw scaled viper, Russell viper, crate and cobra. There is a nice picture of a cobra on the front of this month's edition. All were treated according to World Health Organisation guidelines and common complications included respiratory failure in 35, renal failure in 25 with the need for dialysis in 21. 14 out of 110 of the cases died and 13 out of 110 suffered major sequelae, things like the need for skin graft or amputation and 44 had allergic reactions to snake antivenom. This just emphasises just how serious these snake bites can be. The poor prognostic factors isolated in this study included younger age at presentation, anaemia at the point of admission and the distance walked after the snake bite had occurred, with the distance of greater than one kilometre being a very significant poor prognostic factor. The authors conclude by emphasising the need for early referral and prompt treatment. This presumably needs to be as part of an accessible network in order to better treat and improve the outcome of these common and potentially fatal bites. The second paper I'd like to cover relates to learning, well, learning and remembering after a newborn life support course. So resuscitation courses are run in many countries to train healthcare professionals in adult, paediatric and neonatal resuscitation. And these attempt to standardise clinical practice in the hope that you can minimise error and decrease patient morbidity and mortality. So an interesting question to ask is if you go on one of these courses, how long do you retain the skills learned? In this issue, Mosley and colleagues investigate whether airway management and non-invasive ventilatory skills are retained after attendance at a neonatal life support course. And they use as a testing tool the neonatal life support airway testing sheet. Of 67 candidates who attended and were reassessed at three to five months, only 39% passed first time, 51% on retest, and seven failed. 43 of those initial 67 candidates were retested at 12 to 14 months. And in that cohort, 44% passed first time, 51% on second attempt, and two failed. So it's interesting that the skills are not necessarily retained such that you can pass on a retest. It's interesting also that success on the retest was much more likely in candidates who had attended more than five real-life resuscitations per month. So what does this data tell us? This data tells us that skills tested in a simulated scenario deteriorate within a few months. What it doesn't tell us, however, and this is discussed in an accompanying editorial, is whether or not the deterioration of tested skills correlate with deterioration in skills in clinical practice. But clearly, the opportunity to put learnt skills to you soon after acquisition is absolutely crucial. The third article I'd like to cover relates to getting cardiac massage right. So in essence, more of the same theme. So we know that morbidity and mortality remain high following infant cardiac arrest and therefore optimal cardiopulmonary recitation is imperative. So, in this issue, Martin and colleagues compare two-thumb with two-finger chest compression performed by APLS instructors on an instrumented infant CRP mannequin, using international recommendations. Compression depth, release force, compression rate and duty cycles were recorded, and the data is in the paper. What was interesting was that the majority of compressions failed to comply with the targets, and that was with both techniques. It's of interest in that it suggests that compliance of APLS instructors with current international recommendations during simulated infant CPR is poor. However, the implication of that is not as straightforward. It's discussed in an accompanying editorial. But the most obvious question that arises is the extent to which it matters if chest compressions are slightly too fast, not deep enough, or in the wrong ratio. Clearly, however, it raises the issue that international guidance should reflect best practice and we should at least attempt to adhere to it. The fourth article that I'd like to cover relates to neurodegenerative disorders and metabolic disease. It's a detailed, pragmatic and helpful review. Most genetic causes of neurodegenerative disorders in childhood are due to neurometabolic diseases, including amino acidopathies, creatine disorders, mitochondrial cytopathies, peroxisomal disorders and lysosomal disorders. The presentation of these conditions is often nonspecific with problems including epilepsy, developmental delay, dystonia and autism. The investigation can be quite complex and potentially very expensive. In this issue, Germaine Pierre presents a practical approach to the investigation and management of different ages and particularly where therapeutic options are available the author emphasises that clinical presentation may not be distinctive in the neonate and in early infancy, that neurometabolic disease may progress slowly and mimic cerebral palsy, and most importantly, that metabolic disorders should always be considered, particularly when there is a complex picture of severe neurological and non-neurological features. This review gives you excellent, up-to-date guidance to help assess, diagnose, and manage these complex children. The fifth paper I'd like to cover relates to the use of vitamins. So this is about free vitamins in England. So the current UK recommendation is that pregnant and breastfeeding women and young children, normally after six months, should take vitamin supplements, including A, C and D. In the UK, free vitamins should be available to low-income pregnant women and new mothers and young children through the Healthy Start scheme. But it is well known that uptake is poor. So in this issue, Jessamine and colleagues investigate the potential reasons for this in a qualitative study across 13 primary care trusts interviewing 15 Healthy Start coordinators, 50 frontline health and children's professionals and 107 parents. The headline finding is that vitamin uptake was low at all potential sites, with less than 10% of eligible beneficiaries receiving the vitamins. The reasons for poor uptake are complex but include poor accessibility of vitamins, poor promotion of the scheme, lack of awareness of eligibility, and low motivation to take vitamins even when supplied. This does have serious healthcare implications, and the authors discuss universal provision with improved training of healthcare professionals, and presumably thereby parents, as a potential strategy to improve availability and compliance, and thereby improve the health of our mothers, infants, and young children. I'd like to end by just mentioning some of the content of education and practice this month. So this month, we launch a new series, Research in Practice, or Science for Busy Clinicians, which aims to update the reader on common, important, and interesting topics. There are also articles in the excellent interpretation series, including how to use the neonatal neurological examination and how to use transcutaneous bilirubinometry. There's a challenge in dermatophile and a 15-minute consultation on the large head. There's also a clear and focused review on how long to treat infections for in the pharmacy update section and an excellent guide review on how to best assess and manage psychosis and schizophrenia in childhood. I'm Mark Beattie, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood, and this is some of the content that I've highlighted from the August edition of the journal.